Hi, guys. <laughs> Man, it's so good to be back with you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Jeff and I just got back from Guatemala um, this past Sunday. We got back Sunday. Um, Jeff was involved with teaching a group of about 150 pastors from different villages in the mountains of Guatemala. We were in Coban, which is about, what would you say, like six-hour drive at night and three hours from Guatemala City in the daytime. Um, man, personally, for me, I feel like this was like my first kind of like missions trip, I guess you can say. And I left feeling like I had something to give. When I got there, I feel like I quickly realized that um, <laughs> they had so much more to give than I did. Um, the people that we were serving, um, this pastor and his family, he had two sons, a daughter, um, and a wife, and they led this ministry together as a family. Um, they're involved in multiple things. They... they are training pastors, they're really trying to do a lot of things that I feel like we're doing in Chicago, really trying to like fight for unity in the church, um, in, in Guatemala, um, holding conferences and just, just really trying to serve their community. Um, so when we were there, I felt like it was really cool to just see um, other people fighting for the things that we're fighting for as a church, even across the other side of the world. It's like, man, God, you're really doing something. Like, we, we must really be doing something right. We must really at least have a small hold on your heart and what you're looking for, you know, in our city, because we're not the only people going after it. You know, and it, it was just, it was amazing to see that this church who didn't have many resources, they don't have a build. I mean, well, they have a building, but it's not like a building. They don't even have like one wall. They have three walls <laughs> and then like a courtyard and um, some really interesting singers. <laughs> I wouldn't even say a worship band, really. Um, but man, they were, they're going after it. And there's a touch of God and just um, the presence of God with them. And it's not because the money that they have, because truth be told, they don't have a lot. It's not because of they're wearing fancy suits or because they have lights or they're doing like the hottest new trends, man. But they really just want to grab a hold of God's heart. And so I feel like I came back and I think Jeff came back with a full heart. <laughs> like we, we went to pour ourselves out, but really it was like God just poured himself into us. And encouraged us to go after what we're going after as a community. To unite the church in our city. Unite the church in America and around the world, man. Um, yeah. Yeah. That was good, man. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Guatemala was amazing. It was something... I was telling Carol that it, it, was, um, it was a weird trip for me because usually when I do these trips, like I go to Kenya uh, every year, I've been to India multiple times, usually we're, we're specifically located in the midst of people who are either really impoverished or very limited resources. And for a chunk of the time, that was true of our trip to Guatemala, however, I will say this, we, we worked with a translator whose family represented the kind of the upper crust of society in Guatemala. Like her, the translator's cousin's husband was a former governor of the region we were staying in, and the other cousin's husband was a senator. And, and so it was really wild because we would have these sessions all day, like teaching pastors and eating lunch with them and doing different things. And then at night, they would whisk us away in an SUV, and, and they would take us to this mini mansion on a hill overlooking the city where we'd be, you know, served by servants and making us this incredible meal. And then the next day, we'd go back to, the, you know, with the pastors and teach all day and, and be with these guys. And then at night, oh, we want to take you to visit our finca, which is like a, a 
kind of huge piece of property, which ends up being a coffee plantation where they're growing bananas and, and mangoes and all, bam, like, bamboo. And I'm like, this is really weird. I didn't really know what to do with myself half the time because I, I felt much more comfortable with the poor pastor types than I did in this, like, mansions. But one of the things that this lady, Brenda, her name is, you'll, you'll meet her before too long. She was telling us that, in, in Spanish, she'd say, God has given us cuello in this region. Now, cuello is a way of saying we've got some kind of, like, favor here. And it was literally true. From, from the poor to the rich, these folks were just connected and working toward kingdom goals. So even these rich folks were, like, they, one family in particular, they basically donated their money to run a center for women and children. Where, where ladies could come in, they could get training in, in uh, raising kids, parenting classes. They had like a, a free clothes closet where you could go in and pick out things. And there was counseling. Licensed clinical psychologists and counselors were volunteering time to meet with these young women. And in addition to Christian pastors who were caring for them. So I was like, it just, to me, it kind of spoke to... Our, even our situation here in Chicago, where we're, look, we're not trying by any means to, like, get rich and do the prosperity gospel thing. There's enough people doing that. They, they can have it. But what we want is impact. And it really even challenged me to pray for favor in our city, that God will open doors for us, that he would put us in places where we can impact people, relationships that end up opening doors for ministry in in places in spaces even buildings or locations where we need to be you know if, if there's a feeding program we're supposed to do if there's a, a, a after school thing whatever i what i saw in guatemala really encouraged my heart um you know the ministry we we're able to do was amazing andrew was thrown into the fire the first time he ever preached with a translator and uh that he did awesome he, he it was rough the first night, but man, his attitude was awesome. He was like, okay, he learned from his mistakes. He got out there, and the people loved him. They, they just loved Andrew because everywhere he went, he was the first guy to just ask if there's something he could do to help. And that, that was one thing I really appreciated. Some people go on these trips, and they, you know, they just kind of come into a situation, and they just kind of sit down. And they wait for people to tell them to do something. Well, Andrew, every time we got somewhere, he's just looking around. If he saw a bunch of people from the church setting up chairs, he'd go get chairs and start setting them up. If he saw people organizing something, he'd just go over there and start helping. So, man, I want to commend you on that. I think that spoke volumes to the people there. That I mean, you were ready to come in there as a servant with a humble heart. It was just awesome. So be praying for this city, Colban. Uh, Guatemala, I think we might have a future there as a congregation. Uh, Like Andrew said, the pastor's heart was very close to ours, like just a lot of the same values, a lot of the same vision. This little church, you know, without four walls, was responsible for launching mission, like into the aldeas, the the villages up in the mountains all around where, you know, they had the heart for that even though they were really small. There were other bigger churches in town, but they were the ones fueling this. And so our friend Scott Lee has been going there for the last 11 years, uh, preaching, teaching, trying to train leaders, and, and kind of could see the fruit, some of his work as well. So be praying. I, I suspect we might have some opportunities in the future uh, to go down, to take teams, to, to be a part of the work there, uh, in addition to what we're doing here. So Thanks to all who were praying for us and, and, and remembering us. It was, your prayers were, were answered. Neither one of us got sick, which was also a blessing. Amen? Amen. Does anybody else need to be dismissed? What, what ages? Ages 6 to 12. Okay, you guys can go ahead as well to your classes. Thank you. We wanted you to hear about these international goings-on, if I could put it that way. For the rest of you, we are going to be in 1 Thessalonians 2. So if you brought a Bible or if you have an electronic version, why don't you get ready? 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 is where we'll start.
you know, I have my heart tonight to just speak a little bit about an apostolic mindset, the way that um, the Apostle Paul sees and understands the work that he's doing. And I'm going to get to that in a minute. That comes out of 1 Thessalonians 2, but uh, before I get into that, I want uh, you also, so maybe put your finger in 1 Thessalonians 2, but I want you to turn back to Acts 16. It's Acts 16 and 17 where we see the setup for what we're going to read in 1 Thessalonians 2, okay? Acts 16 describes, beginning in uh, verse 11, the ministry that Paul and Timothy and Silas were a part of in a city called Philippi. Philippi is in modern-day Greece, although in ancient times it would have been called Macedonia. Paul and his companions arrived there in verse 11, and they immediately look for what's called in the text a place of prayer. Apparently, Philippi did not have a proper synagogue. To have a synagogue, you needed a certain number of Jewish men uh, in order to constitute this. Usually it was 10 men, and then you could construct a building where folks would come to pray, and they would come to read the Scripture, the Torah, and sometimes they would come to uh, teach and instruct doesn't seem like there was such a place in Philippi. So Paul and his companions heard that there was a place where people were praying, however, that it wasn't a formal synagogue, and it was near the river. So the the text tells us that they went ahead over by the river where they encountered a group of women. Come on, ladies. Women were praying by the river. You guys with me? And contrary to some of the expectations in our day, the three apostolic men of God did not pass over the women to look for people that were more important. They went to the women who were praying because they realized something was of value there and that these ladies had a heart for God. So they came over, they preached the gospel. One woman in particular was not only converted, apparently, but so moved by what she heard that according to the text, she kind of urged these men to come and stay in her home. Now, her name was Lydia. She sold purple fabric, which probably meant she was a wealthy woman. So a wealthy woman, we don't know if she was married. She could have been single. Either way, she invited the apostles to come and stay in her home, and this became a kind of headquarters in the city for the gospel movement. Now, as Paul and his companions were working in the city, they began to be harassed by a woman who had a demonic spirit. Okay, the text says that over many days, this is uh, Acts 16, verse 15, over many days she would point out and she would say things like, these are servants of the Most High God, and, and other things like that. And you would say, well, what's wrong with that? I mean, why, why was that bothersome to the apostles? They were. Well, because these proclamations were being, like, manifest as a result of a demonic spirit, a python spirit, the text says. It's a kind of regional god, a regional demonic influence. And so for many days, Paul put up with this. It's interesting to me. You ever wonder, like, what's going Like, why didn't he deal with this the first time he heard it? Well, for some reason or another, he just let it go for a while. But in Acts 16, verse 15, it says, after many days, he had had enough. How about that? He said, that's enough. And and so he cast out the demon. Now, the demon was allowing this woman to prophesy, actually, to foretell the future. And this woman was a slave, and so whoever owned her realized that now that that demonic spirit had been cast out, she no longer was able to foretell the future. So think about this the next time you're getting ready to cast out a demon because not everybody's going to be happy about what you're doing. You would think, like, there would be, oh, hey, praise God, you know, this demonic person has been liberated. No. The owner of the woman was mad and led a procession 
bringing Paul and Barnabas to the Agora, the, the main marketplace in front of the Bema, this seat where cases will be adjudicated, accusing him of doing things wrong and, and, uh, and of putting forward customs that were contrary to Rome, like allowing demon-possessed people to prophesy, apparently. So he gets arrested. At least uh, he and Silas are arrested. Apparently Timothy isn't arrested at this point. Not sure why. Maybe he wasn't a part of the main ministry activity. But according to Acts 16, only Paul and Silas are thrown into jail. They're put in prison. They're put in, like, actual braces around their ankles, and they're locked up. And being super depressed, they sat around whining for three hours. No, it's not. I'm sorry. That's not what the Bible says. Actually, that's what we would do. (laughs) Things aren't going our way. No, Paul and Silas, it says, around midnight started singing hymns and praising God. Of course, it's a natural thing to do when you're in jail. They start singing hymns and praise God, and there's an earthquake. All right, all the shackles fall off of everybody. And the jailer, recognizing that an earthquake has happened and that the gate, the door of the jail has been opened up, takes his sword, and he's about to, like, run it through because he figures all the prisoners escaped, they're going to kill me anyway. Might as well take care of this now. But from the inside of the jail, hey, we're still here. (laughs) Don't kill yourself. We're still in here. And the jailer's like, what are you talking? Why are you still here? You know, and he comes in and he asks them what's going on. And long story short, the jailer takes these dudes out of jail, brings them to his own house, and requests them to explain how it is that I should be saved. Has that ever happened to you? It's kind of bizarre. Like People come up to you, how can I be saved? Please tell me. Well, after supernatural earthquakes and stuff, that tends to happen. But in this, so he pre- they preached the gospel. The Bible says the jailer and his whole household came to faith. Pretty awesome. Okay, now, so that's, when, when this happens, they try to tell the apostles, okay, just go ahead, leave the city. The end of Acts 16. But you know what old Paul does? You know, it's like this guy kind of pushes the envelope at times. If it's me, they just put me in jail. They're telling me, okay, you can go. I'm just going to go. But Paul says, no. You guys put us in here publicly. You, according to Acts 16, they beat them with rods. There was no trial. You threw us in jail. You beat us with rods. We're Roman citizens. And now you're just going to tell us to go without any kind of public apology? No. We're staying, you know, it's like, and I think at that point, the, the administrator's like, you can't stay here. We've had enough of the earthquakes and whatnot. You're going. So they actually issue an apology. And they, they, they march them to the edge of town, and they said, we apologize now. Would you please be on your way? And Paul says, okay. <laughs> you know, at least he got the apology. Like, it's really interesting to me. He was not going to just let that go. The, na- the name of Jesus, the reputation, I, don't, I believe it wasn't Paul. It wasn't his, his issue. Like, he wasn't proud and arrogant. He was like, no, 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 the testimony. People are going to hear it from you publicly that we did nothing wrong. And it's for the gospel, not for him. He could care less about his own reputation. It's the gospel. So he comes back to them and forces them to declare publicly he's innocent. And then he says, okay, we're going. And that, right after that, is when they show up in Thessalonica. And that's where we start Acts chapter 17. So if you look there in verse 1, it says, After they left Philippi, they traveled through a couple of towns, and then they came to Thessalonica. Thessalonica is also in the northern part of Greece. Macedonia, really, in the ancient world. And according to the text now... There is a synagogue in Thessalonica, which means there's probably a larger Jewish community. People with a background in the scriptures. People for whom a conversation about a Messiah would make some sense. So Paul, according to the text, spends three Sabbath days reasoning with them in the synagogue. And the first thing he's trying to prove is that the Messiah had to rise from the dead. So that's what the text says he tried to reason with them, showing them from the scriptures that the Messiah had to rise from the dead. Now, he might have appealed to Psalm 16. He might have appealed to any number of passages in the Old Testament that show this pattern. 
of, of a man who dies and then who has to come back from the grave. There are different places. But he's arguing about this, and then at the end of it, he's saying, now I want you to know that Jesus is that Messiah because he rose from the dead. So three Sabbath days, that's three Saturdays. That means he could have been there as little as 15 days. Like if he started on a Saturday, and then the next Saturday, and the third Saturday, that could have been 15 days, or it could have been maybe as long as 21 days. So if he got there on Sunday, and reason Saturday, Saturday, Saturday. Anyway, 15 to 21 days is all the time he spent in Thessalonica. That's all. It's not a long time. But something happened there. According to the text, a number of the Jews from the synagogue believed in the message, as well as a good number of devout Greeks. That probably means Gentile people who had not converted to Judaism, but who hung around the synagogue anyway. Because they were impressed with Jewish morality. That's why a lot of Gentiles respected Jews. Or perhaps they had some interest in gaining wisdom from the Jewish scriptures. There were reasons that some Gentiles looked to Judaism as a source of help in their moral conflict. You can read about that in Romans 7. It didn't work very well because the law can't really make you right. But it was better than their Gentile stuff. And so some of them hung around the synagogues. So many Jews believed, devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading Women, come on, ladies. What? The leading women again. Come on, if someone tells you women cannot be the foundation of a strong church, they are not reading the Bible. I promise. Philippi and Thessalonica, Greek women. What? Greek women, the foundation of the church in Macedonia. Come on, you you can get your people fired up here. Please. Not a few of the leading women. See, leading women are reasonable. Leading women are intelligent. Leading women have a heart for God. And these women, they expressed that and they signed on to this Jesus movement. And so they became a part of this thing. Now, the Jews from Philippi came to Thessalonica to try to stir up trouble. How about that? They lost over there, so now they're coming over here to try to to thwart the thing. So Paul and his crew had to move out of the synagogue, and they started meeting in a new headquarters. Now, I'm not giving you all the verses, but you can read this later. They start meeting at Jason's house. Y'all know Jason from the hood, right? From the block, Jason. They started meeting at Jason's house. And the house now became recognized as a location from which the movement was working. If you guys were here, some of you guys, you're not, you haven't been around long enough, but we, when we first started doing the house churches, this is one of the passages I referred to. Melody Fabian remembers. And I said, if you're, look, if you're going to want to start a house church, you better be willing to, to understand that your house is now going to be recognized and connected with the movement. And when they got frustrated with Paul... They came for Jason. Uh-huh. Because they said, oh, boy, is meeting in your house. You're coming with us. So they brought Jason and his, you know, whatever. They brought him. They got him in trouble. This time it wasn't Paul that they, they, took, they took hold of. It was, it was Jason, the guy who showed him hospitality, the guy who let him use the space. Listen, you got to be ready. It's like, house church, this isn't just a nice thing we do on Sunday. This isn't just like a... Oh, it's so fun. It's so great. Listen, when they come for you, remember this passage. I, I don't know that they're coming for you. I'm just saying. I'm just saying it because I don't want anybody to say, you never told us. No, I told you. We told you. So they came for him. They came for Jason. They, they brought him and, and they threatened him. And Jason paid them money to leave him alone. <laughs> Hey, sometimes that's what you got to do. And so they put forth a large sum of money so that, they, you know, and that was it. And then Paul and Barnabas, uh, sorry, Paul and Silas and Timothy left. And they, and they sent them on their way to the next spot. Now listen, why do I go through all that? Because I want you to understand something. This is a, this is a narrative. That's a, it's a description 
from the author of Acts, probably a, a guy named Luke. He's just describing to you what's happening, right? He's telling you what's going on. He's giving you some of the highlights. He's giving you some of the things that took place. But what I want you to understand is, the, is what's going on in Paul's mind and heart behind all of it. And that's what we get out of 1 Thessalonians. So we got the narrative here in Acts, but you're going to get the mindset of the apostle when you look at what he's writing about that experience. So let's turn to 1 Thessalonians, the second chapter. I think you still had your finger there. Let's just read this first half of the chapter here. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 1, it says, You, for you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our coming to you was not in vain. In other words, we didn't waste our time. It wasn't a lot of time. Remember, 15 to 21 days. Mira, she's adorable. (laughs) Sorry. 15 to 21 days. But our coming to you was not in vain. You know it wasn't in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know. Now that's the story we just read about where they were arrested, they were beaten with rods without a trial unjustly. That wasn't supposed to happen to Roman citizens. They were thrown in prison, in shackles. He says, we were treated shamefully, and you know what I'm talking about. So in other words, they're on board, they understand the story and what had happened to them. So even though we had gone through that, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Do you know how sometimes in our lives we wait for all the dust to settle before we want to start doing something? Well, Paul said, no, it was in the midst of the conflict that we came to you anyway. Nothing was settled. I mean, we got apologized to, but we already knew when we showed up that they would be coming for us again, because that's basically the pattern of the book of Acts. Wherever Paul goes, they're following him, and they show up there. Read Acts 13 through 14, and you can see this happening in Asia Minor, a different uh, part of of the ancient Mediterranean region. This is what happens to him. It's it's his norm. You know what I'm talking about? We all have a norm, you know, just a way of life, things that we're dealing with. It's a kind of a pattern. But Paul, this is the norm. Much conflict. It always amazes me to read Paul's resume, which I I consider what he wrote in 2 Corinthians 11, his resume. He's being compared to other apostles or maybe some false apostles, maybe some real. And he says, listen, if you want me to tell you my qualifications, let me run down the list. Now, it's not what you would expect. In our world, when we put out a resume, we put out the best things, right? Right? Finished top of my class, you know, the young uh, Republicans, uh, young Democrats, whatever. I, you know, I was the chairperson for the this and the, I did the uh, mock trial. I, w- I was in the debate club. I got, did, uh, you know, I did these scholarships. We, we put our best foot forward and we say, here, this is why you want to trust me. Right? Paul's resume is a little different. It mentions stuff like being beaten with rods, being, having people throw rocks at him. It mentions being whipped, giving the 39 lashes, being receiving the 39 lashes five separate times. He says, I'm in danger in the city. I'm in danger in the country. I'm in danger with the, the, the opponents. I'm in danger from false brothers. He says, it doesn't matter where I go. I've been shipwrecked. I spent a day and night in the, in, in the deep. And this is his resume. His point is, this is life for me, guys. I, this, is none, this is the new normal. Much conflict. It just follows this guy. You can see why some people might not, want, want, might not have wanted to have anything to do with him. Because wherever he goes, trouble comes. And you can imagine some of these people being like, oh, that's the trouble. Listen, don't, go, don't stay away from him. And he says, look, I don't take it as something negative. I, I take it as a positive. And in Galatians 6, he says, I bear on my body 
the marks of Jesus. So stop adding to my trouble. I mean, he's, he's, he's telling these believers in Galatia, you want to know who the real apostles are? Ask these guys to take their shirts off. I know what's on my back. And I know what's not on theirs. Like the trouble is not a sign that he's doing something wrong. It's a sign that he's doing something right. That might be a word for, the, for somebody here tonight. It might be a word, for, word of the Lord for you. You know, sometimes trouble comes and you're like, what did I do wrong? Well, maybe it's not that. Maybe it's what did I do right? Trouble's going to come. Isn't that an old jazz song? Blues, trouble going to come. Anybody heard that? I could be making it up. It should be if it's not. Okay. We had boldness in the midst of much conflict. He did not interpret the conflict as a problem, but rather as an endorsement. That's what led to his boldness. That's the soldier's mentality that some of us lack and need to cultivate. The minute there's a problem, we start whining and moping around. It's like, hey, this is what you signed up for. Be ready for much conflict. It's the nature of things. When you sign on to God's kingdom, you find yourself in opposition to the other one. We had boldness. Our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Now this is, Paul's getting into motive here. Motive. That's an M word. I have a few M words tonight. So if you want to write those down, you want to just file those away, you want to make a a little entry in your smartphone, I have a few M words for you. The first one is motive. Getting inside the heart of of an apostolic man. You want to know what makes him tick? He's showing you right now. He said, look, this did not, we didn't do this because we wanted to get something from you. We didn't do this out of anything impure. We were not hoping you would like us. Okay, do you see what he says? He says, we didn't do it out of these these motives. We weren't trying to deceive you. You see, God improved us. God entrusted us with something. It's the same verb that when it talks about people in the Bible having to trust God, it's the same verb here applied to God. Paul's saying God trusted us. Now, we don't like to use that language because it sounds arrogant. It sounds proud. But you know what? Paul knows something about who he is. He and Silas and Timothy, they know who they are. And they're not playing games. And so when it comes to the issue of what are you doing here, Paul's response is, we've been approved. And we've been entrusted with something from God. And that's why we're here. We don't need you to validate that. We don't need to run to you guys in order for you to tell us how great we are. We have a a relationship with God through which he's already told us who we are. And then he stamped something on us in the gospel so that we can't do anything else. We have to do this. We've been entrusted with this. It's it's a precious thing God's given us. We're not doing it to please men, it says in verse 4, but to please God who tests our hearts. Man, motive. The reason we came to you guys was to please him. Now listen, this is very important. There are times in our life when we're motivated to do things. It it could be because we have compassion on people. It could be because we know we can do something. It could be because we feel an obligation or we feel people's eyes on us like we have to do something because people are looking to us. There's only one real good reason to do something. And if, it's, it's if you can say to please God as the motive for your doing it. And I'll tell you why. There's a lot of things you could do. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to look around our city and see the mess see the disaster 
see the tragedy and the brokenness and the emptiness. But you can't afford to run around like a chicken with your head cut off. You need to please him. And in order to do that, you got to know his mind and heart. And this is what Paul is saying. We knew what to do. We had a responsibility before God. It's why we came to you. We, we did it to please him. That was our primary motive. That The whole thing stands and falls on this issue. We live for the Lord. We don't just live for the Philippians. We don't just live for the Thessalonians. We don't just live for the Jews. We don't just live for the nations. We live for him. That's the dividing line that measures everything. You can't, we cannot just get, we can't fall into the issue. We can't just stumble upon something to do and then call it God. We want to live for him. We're willing to die for him, but how about living for him too? Sometimes we, we think, oh, well, I, I gladly give my life for God. If it came down to it, somebody put a gun to my head, I would say Jesus is Lord. But if my life doesn't testify to that day in and day out, what kind of confession is that? Sometimes it's easier to die for God than live. Because when you live, you have to have to make decisions and discern and make choices and ask yourself, God, what would please you right now? Not, not just what looks good to people or, or what makes others happy. What about you, Lord? Paul says the only thing driving us is the Lord Jesus. He's what we're living for. That's why we came to Thessalonica. Bottom line, there were dozens, hundreds of other cities he could have gone to. They went there. And he's telling them why. It was to please God. It's important. There's a lot of good and fine things Christians do and should do. There are moral obligations in the kingdom. There are things we're responsible for. But if the motivation for what we do doesn't start right here to please God, the thing's going to break apart after, after a little while. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Fine. You know, I mean, if that's the motivation, if the motivation is just, well, I just, I obeyed the scripture. Didn't work. Now can we get divorced? I mean, if that really, is that the motivation of the heart? Listen, husbands love your wives only works if the husbands are saying, I want to please you, so help me love her. You can't, you can't do it just as a decision of, of moral will. Wives, submit to your husbands. Okay. No, it only works if you want to please God, and that's why you're responding to that. Fathers, don't provoke your kids to anger. It's not going to work that way. If you want to please God, then you're going to respond to his exhortations and instructions. This is, this is the way it works. Everything is like this. Everything has to come from that place. Knowing, Paul, you know, saying multiple times, Jesus is Lord. You know, he's fully, uh, he's fully authorized to run our lives. And he's fully qualified to run our lives. You want to put your resume up against God's and ask yourself, who is more qualified to run my life? Me. Graduated 3.7 from state school in Wisconsin. God. Created the heavens and the earth in six days. I mean, come on. So look, if he's qualified to run your life, wouldn't you want to get on board with that? Wouldn't you want to be like, yeah. You, you have a better plan. And in fact, you love me and you care for me, so I want to trust you. I want, and it, you tell me in your word that if I, if I obey you, it makes you happy. You know, like, let me do that. The motive. Paul's not just running around Macedonia. I mean, th there are directions. There are targets for him. There are reasons, and all of it boils down to that. He's got one, he's got one person, the living God, whose opinion he's, he's concerned to validate. He wants to please God. That's it. That's why we came to you. He says, that's the motive. So Thessalonians, we love you guys. And he said, read First Thessalonians. This is an amazing group of people, by the way. There's not a lot of rebukes here in First Thessalonians. There's a lot of gushy, mushy stuff. In fact, we'll read about it in a minute. A lot of like, we love you, our hearts are with you, that kind of thing. It's the, it's the polar opposite of Galatians. 
if you're interested. The tone of Galatians is, you foolish Galatians, who bewitched you guys? What happened? I mean, it's a rebuke, Galatians. Thessalonians is like, oh, I just love you guys so much. Can't wait to come and see you again. I mean, it's just his heart pouring out. But he's very clear. You're not what we're living for. It's him. He's the motive. He's the one that organized all of this. He's the one who brought us to, to you. So if you want to be grateful, we appreciate you're grateful for us. But listen, turn it, turn it to him. He's the one who guided our steps to be with you. We didn't come with flattery, verse 5 says, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is our witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. Though we could have made demands as apostles of the Messiah. There's a good insight into Paul's view of authority, by the way. And for you, look, maybe there's some people in the room tonight. You, you want to lead a house church one day. You want to preach the gospel. You want to go on the mission field. You need to know two things. Number one, you have authority in Jesus Christ. Number two, this is how authority in Jesus Christ looks. Not using it to demand people do stuff. But appealing to them on the basis of love and mutuality. This is, the, this is the apostolic mindset. Because it was the mindset of Jesus. Who had authority. Can we all agree to that? Jesus had authority. Amen. He had authority. But he didn't come in there demanding people to do things for him. He came in there as a servant. Laying down his life. Some of us think this way. We used to, I used to think this way. I can't wait until I'm in charge of stuff and I can just tell people what to do. That's how we used to think. I can't wait to have my own church. I can't wait to have my own ministry. I can tell people what to do. I won't have to do this stuff they tell me to do. It's like it's completely backwards. He says, I, had a, I have an authority. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. He entrusted me with the gospel. I know that. But I didn't march in here with orders for you. I wasn't motivated by a desire to make myself, to prove myself that I'm the big man around here. I have authority. I could have told you what to do. That's not what I'm doing. My motive is not for you to simply be so impressed with me that you'll just do what I say. Nope. I'm trying to please God. That's why I came. We could have made demands. Some people go so far in the opposite direction. They say there's no leadership. You don't need a pastor. You don't need someone to care for. You don't need any elders. You just live for Jesus. He's all you need. You know what Paul says? He says we have authority and we could have made demands. It's not that there is no authority. It's not that there's no legitimate authority. That's wrong. That's not apostolic gospel. That's not biblical thinking. There is genuine authority that people are given in God. But Paul says, I want you to know how we wielded our authority. Not by making demands. Here's how we did it. Verse 7. We were gentle among you. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. You guys with me? You know, sometimes we think about apostleship. And we think apostles are the, you know, the kind of big guns like in the Wild West. Like the John Wayne type figures. Hey, a fella. You know, we think about apostles and we, we think, whoa, he's an apostle. Paul's image for his apostolic, here's the next M, his method, Lenise. Me- I talked about his motive. This is the method. So when he came to Thessalonica, here was his methodology. Here's how we're going to break through in Thessalonica. Paul says, I became like a nursing mother. (laughs) Are you kidding me right now, bro? A what? Do what now? No, he said, we were like a nursing mother with you guys. So here's what you need to have in your brain. Apostolic authority equals nursing mother. Okay? Apostolic authority looks like, the method looks like nursing mother. Because we are so affectionately desirous of you, 
we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our, our own selves, our own lives, because you have become so very dear to us. You know, we talk a lot about family here at Cross Culture, and this is why, because one of the primary, uh, one of the primary metaphors for church in the New Testament is brothers and sisters. And here, you know, a great apostolic paradigm is parenting. A nursing mother who, I mean, I don't know if you can think of a more tender, vulnerable, like exposed position to be in. I mean, a nursing mother. Are you kidding me right now? Paul says, that's what I was like. We just opened our life to you. The life that was inside of us, we gave to you. And we didn't do it through a surrogate. We ourselves nursed you. By the way, this isn't a statement against surrogate mothers or anything. Please don't hear what I'm not saying. But but what he said was, we did everything we could do. We did the the most possible, intimate, uh, exposed, gentle, tender thing we could think of. That's, That's how we were with you. We, we longed for you. We pleased God, but we longed for you. We cared about you. And so we put ourselves in this position where, man, the, what we had very inside of us, we, we opened the door for you to receive it. You remember verse 9 says, brothers and sisters, our labor and our toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you guys while we were proclaiming to you the gospel of God. Think about that. You know, they didn't come in asking for charity. They didn't come in looking, even caring for hospitality. They just said, listen, we'll take care of everything. We're fine. We're interested in you and how you guys are doing. That's what a, what a vision of apostolic life right there. Children don't take care of parents. This is what Paul's thinking. Parents take care of children. You don't go to an infant and say, hey, could you guys please get out and mow some lawns because we got to get some milk. No, you, parents take care of the children. So in Paul's mind, he's like, listen, we'll handle it. Whatever our needs are, we'll work. We'll take care of it. We'll do it. We don't want this burden to be on you guys. You're like children to us. And one day you'll grow up and you'll take care of yourselves. Right now, we're going to take care of you and we'll take care of ourselves. And we're going to demonstrate a way of life in front of you. You are witnesses, verse 10 says. And God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Sometimes we might think, again, well, that's pretty arrogant, Paul. You're saying that you're holy and righteous and blameless. But it's not arrogance, it's a reminder Paul's not trying to prove a point. He's trying to remind them of the reality that they witnessed. Now, if his life wasn't holy and righteous and blameless, then we got a problem. But if it was, if it was, then it's an illustration of the nature of God's kingdom. Do you understand what I'm saying? The method was to just live in front of folks and raise them like children. That's, it wasn't like super complicated. Paul didn't come into Thessalonica and start setting up, you know, whatever, outreaches. You know, he, he was sharing the gospel with people. We, we'll see that in a minute. But it was his life that he said, you should, this speaks to you. It should speak to you. What we did. How we did it. We're, we're not just people coming in to drop off some tracks for you. And say, Good luck. Carry on. He said, we came. We lived with you like a, like a mother. I nursed you like a father. I exhorted you. I encouraged you. I charged you with things. I put in front of you something to live for, something that matters, something that you guys could have stepped into. That's the way we did it. It was our method. He spoke to them with his life. He illustrated the nature of authority and and he became a parent 
And he gave them a vision for what maturity in God looks like then. And I just, we we want to raise these points because here's, sometimes we might get lost in the sea of things to do. Because again, there's a lot to do. But these are foundational things. Pleasing God. Being a parent. Having such conduct that is visible to people. He said, our lives were in front of you. There wasn't anything hidden. There wasn't a do not disturb sign like, oh no, you can't. Look, we'll talk in the synagogue on Saturday. But the rest of the week is me time. There wasn't that mindset. The mindset was that, you saw what we did. We worked all day. We were with you guys in the night. We preached the kingdom. We proclaimed the gospel. We lived for you. We nursed you. We raised you. We charged you. Guys, this is three weeks only. But in three weeks, it was enough time to leave a a track record that he could appeal to months or maybe years later and say, you remember this, right? He assumes that they remember this. This wasn't something like he was trying to persuade them. Well, you remember that one time I kind of acted nice to you? No, no, outside of the pizza parlor, I, I, I I picked that thing off of your shirt. Like, he didn't have to, like, make up, like, ridiculous things. He could just say, you remember, night and day, our lives were the example of what we're calling you into. That's the method. Now, all of this is grounded in the message. It's a third M. I'm usually not a big alliteration guy. I'm really not. I can't remember the last alliteration message I gave, in point of fact. Do you remember? Carol? I I don't even remember. But this is alliterated. It's extra. You know, we have a saying at Fire Chicago that the difference between ordinary and extraordinary is extra. Extra. That's the difference. So this is extra today for you. Special today only. Okay. The message he carried, which he mentions five times in these 13 verses, he calls it four times the gospel of God. If you're taking notes, that's in verse 2, verse 4, verse 8, and verse 9. On four instances, he says, we brought to you the gospel of God, meaning the good news about God. In verse 13, on two occasions, he refers to it as the word of God. Contextually, I take that to be equivalent with the gospel. The gospel of God is the word of God. That's the message that we came to articulate to you. We could spend a lot of time talking about what the gospel is, but in a brief statement, Paul summarizes the gospel in Romans 10. He says, Jesus, the Messiah, is Lord. That's his summary. Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. A lot of you guys know that verse. It's a part of the Romans road, if I'm not mistaken. If you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and you confess with your mouth that Jesus, the Messiah, is Lord. Because if it's with your heart that you're justified, but it's with your mouth that you confess and you're saved. It's part of the Romans road. Okay, so never mind. The gospel of God is that Jesus, the Messiah, is Lord. Messiah is a term that means anointed one. It's a reference to Israel's long-awaited king and deliverer. Many prophecies, of course, illustrate the nature of that deliverance and that liberation. Jesus perfectly revealed it, that it wasn't a socio-political issue. It was a spiritual issue, fundamentally, that led later to socio-political change in terms of people realigning their lives under a new leadership. That would be the Lord Jesus. So Messiah means that. It means royal, like royal anointed one. Israel's king. And because he's Israel's king, he therefore becomes Lord of the nations. Is, I'm filling that in there. But kurios is the term that was applied to the Roman emperor. He was called Lord This term is also used to translate the personal name of God in the Old Testament. Probably pronounced Yahweh, but when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, for the Greek-speaking Jewish community outside of Israel after the Babylonian captivity, 
the personal name of Yahweh in the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek as kurios. So not only is Jesus Messiah, the royal anointed king, but he is kurios, which means alternatively he's God, and at the very least he's the ruler of the world. The gospel is this. It's not just that God is love, which he is. It's not just that you're forgiven, which you can be. It's not just that the blood of Jesus washes away your sins. It does. But you have to go further than that because all of those things in and of themselves require no change on your part. You could say the blood of Jesus forgives my sins and keep merrily sinning if you want and keep saying the blood of Jesus forgives my sins. You can say God loves me and believe it and know it and keep sinning. But the minute you say Jesus, the Messiah, is God or King or Lord, that requires now allegiance. That requires a response. Because you can't say he's King and then not obey. If you, if you don't obey, he's not in charge. Romans 6, you are a slave to the one you obey. That's it. The gospel not only says... And it does say this, that God is love and then he died for us. He forgives our sins. He came down. He humbled himself. He offers us life eternal. Yes, 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 yes. And he's king. (laughs) And that is what calls people into a new reality. Colossians 1. We're transferred out of darkness into the realm of his beloved son. That's, That's the gospel. Paul said that's the message. That's why it was causing so much trouble in the Roman world. He's calling people out of their worship of idols. He's calling people, it says that in 1 Thessalonians 1. You guys turned, verse 9, to God from idols to serve the living and true God. We don't understand the full import of that. Because to us, idols are just a religious thing. To them, it was a way of life. Everything was related to the idols. Your your household's fortunes. (laughs) were related to the sacrifices that you brought to the idols. You step away from that, you could cause disaster on your household. That's what they thought. You don't worship God right, you could cause an earthquake or some kind of volcano to erupt on your city. But the Thessalonians did it anyway because Jesus is the Messiah and he's Lord. That's his message. So he's calling them into that. And finally, the last M, and we're, we're going to be done. The last M is mission. What, what was he seeking to accomplish? What was Paul's objective in all of this? What's the apostolic mandate? What's the grid? What's he looking to do? I believe he expresses it in verse 12. When he says that we exhorted and encouraged and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. God calls people into his realm and into his glorious presence, and the burden of an apostolic movement is to raise people up to walk worthy of that calling. And you could say, oh, I'm not worthy of that calling. I'm aware that outside of Jesus, of course, no one is worthy. But you should be aware that in the gospel, we are invited to walk worthy because of what Jesus has done for us and because of who Jesus is to us now. The Lord and leader of our lives, the one who gives us the Holy Spirit, the one who equips us with everything that we need and then puts us in a position to say, now live the way we're living. Just like Paul, Timothy, Silas, walk worthy. What does that look like? I just told you. You saw it lived out in front of you. Now just do that. Because Paul can say this in certain instances. Walk, imitate me as I imitate God. It's not arrogance because it's real. He's not trying to make people think a certain way of him. He's just saying, look, I know you need a grid. You guys came out of idolatry. You don't know the God of Israel from Adam. Like you probably don't know Adam either <laughs> because that's in the Bible. But You don't know the God of Israel from whatever, from Tinkerbell, I mean, you, they don't know what to do. You understand? They're coming out of idolatry. They don't know how to worship God, right? They don't know the Ten Commandments. They don't know who Isaiah is. And Paul shows up in their town. He casts out a demon. 
He's thrown in jail. He's busted out of there. He shows up in the next town. There's a riot. And the people are like, we like what you're saying. We have no idea what's going on. Can you please tell us what to do? He says, I'm showing you what to do now. My mission is to imitate. My mission is to reproduce what I'm doing in you. Not by my strength, but by what God supplies. Through his gospel, by his power, through the spirit. This is living now. This is the new reality. So the mission is not just, oh, let's just set up a church. Let's just um, organize a church and start having some meetings. You don't read one thing in this about meetings. Not that meetings are wrong. I love meetings. I like the fact that we meet. I like to meet with you. But listen, it's much bigger than this. The meeting is a foretaste of something we'll have for the rest of forever. In the meeting, we celebrate the values. We rehearse these things. We remind ourselves of what we're here for. We encounter God as a unit, as a body, and we wait on him for instructions because there's a life to live that's worthy of his kingdom and his glory. I feel like something needs to break off tonight of people who are in here and you just think you shouldn't be allowed to do this for some reason. It's kind of like you're sitting here thinking, well, that's maybe for other people. It's not for me. No, it is for you. It is for you. The kingdom and glory of God are for you. You're to walk worthy of these things. You're not to look at somebody else and say, well, maybe he can walk worthy. Maybe Jose can walk worthy, but not me. Baloney. The, the call on his life is the same one that's on your life. The invitation, the demand to walk worthy of the kingdom and the glory of God. Come on, let's be sons. Haven't you guys been hearing about sons the last couple weeks? Jose dropping dimes on you guys about sonship and daughterhood. Listen, this is what sons do. They walk worthy of the kingdom. This is what daughters do. They walk worthy of the glory of God, which they carry in themselves because of God's spirit and presence. Come on, let's shape life this way. Let's learn how to live this way. That's the mission. Not just organizing meetings. The mission is building people like this. People who look at the kingdom and the glory of God and say, yeah, I'm built for that. Not in a way that's arrogant, in a way that's honest. In a way that's real, in a way that accepts God's call on us as what defines us. Not our hang-ups, not our messes, not our disasters, not our failures in the past. That's not the grid for where we're going. The grid for where we're going looks like Jesus Christ He is the prototype. Isn't that right? Romans 8. Our destiny is to be conformed to the image of the Son of God so that he can be the firstborn among many siblings. Amen. So guys, tonight you got the motive. You got the message. You got the method. And you got the mission. Mmm. Come on. You see what I did there? Mm. You, you can't give me that. This guy's tough to please, I promise. Let's stand together. Put your hand on somebody's shoulder. Just one minute. We're just going to end this. Praying as a unit. If you're not by somebody, get by somebody. Hallelujah. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. We'd be totally lost without your word. It's a complete lamp for our feet, a light for our path. There's no other way for us to move forward apart from the scriptures and the, and the way that you lay out the truth for us. God, we recognize you have a high call on all of our lives. We are to live worthy of the kingdom and glory of God. There's nothing higher than that. There's no calling higher than that. Nothing. President of the United States is nothing compared to the call of living worthy of the kingdom and glory of God. And I pray that that sinks into us tonight, Lord. That nobody leaves this room thinking, that's not for me. God, expose every lie, expose every seed of doubt that's planted by darkness. Lord, liberate your people to live for this calling. To see it, to embrace it, to run hard after it, God. We want to be a people in our city that reflect your value system and your mission. 
We need to see you. We need to be near you. We ask God for an anointing, uh, an impartation of your Holy Spirit, so that we're, what, whatever we're doing, we're doing it in the presence of God, and we know that. That whatever we're doing, we're doing it to please you. Whether we're at work, whether we're at home, we're at the park, we're at the grocery store, none of it, nothing changes really. You're still Lord wherever we go. You're still in charge of us. You still want to demonstrate something through us. And in our lives, God, we just say yes to you right now. Have your way. Make us into that people that is worthy of the kingdom of God. Worthy of the glory of your person. Smile on us, Jesus. Pray that you just empower us, God. Men, women, children, come upon us. We want to prophesy by the power of the Spirit. We want to live worthy. We want to walk so full of your presence and so close to your heart, Jesus. We confess, Lord, we have not lived up to that standard, but we are not going to quit because you are the one working in us. And as long as you are committed to us, we have hope. And your love endures forever. So we are going to be a people who live in hope and expectation and confidence of what it is that you want to do in us and through us. Bless every single person in this room. Bless every married couple. Bless every child. Lord, we are all a part of this. Nobody's exempt. Give us the grace to rally together around your cause for the sake of your great name. Jesus, we love you. Have your way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, praise God. Thank you, guys. Please be praying for us this weekend. If you're not traveling to North Carolina, we really covet your prayers. We're believing the Lord for something important to happen out of this meeting, of these series of meetings. Again, I like meetings. It's fine. But please pray. We want God to be glorified. You'll be meeting in house churches next weekend, and we might have to mix up 